How can you manage expectations when it comes to customer service? It can be more important to the longevity of your brand's success than you might think. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor, and I'm your host, Bob Fibbs. On today's episode, I'm talking with Alex Shuford, CEO of a luxury furniture group that includes Century Furniture and Hancock and & Moore and a bunch of other brands you probably know. We're talking about how to manage expectation with customer service and ultimately being a multi-store owner who knows their limits. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So who are you and what do you have to do with retail? Uh, so I'm a third generation um, owner operator of, uh, of a large uh, luxury U.S. furniture manufacturer um, across multiple brands. I've been in the business for 20 years, um, actually started, strangely enough, in retail as a young uh, man right out of college, <laughs> which is a whole different story. Wait um, a minute. Business, Hold, it, wait, wait, stop for one second. I know. <laughs> no one goes to college and says, I'm going to go work in retail. I did that, but uh, I'm just curious. Uh, was that just people called you back and said, would you like to work in furniture or... No, it's so I started off after college doing um, some high net worth advising, uh, supposedly. So basically selling financial services to to business people. And part of what they asked me to do was to specialize in a category. So I started seeking out furniture and fabric store owners as part of my consideration set, part of the people that I was going to go contact and, and approach. And the more I researched the, uh, the stores that were in my area, the more I realized that they were all um, single mom and pop stores and that there was an opportunity uh, if I was active and, and, and smart enough to pull it off to roll a few of them up and make a bigger retail business out of a number of these stores that, that were really only lasting five, seven, 10 years, kind of the length of their first lease. <laughs> and then they sort of go away. And, and so I bought, a little fabric and decorating store in the San Francisco Bay area with the concept that, you know, I would open another and, and, and acquire a few others in the area. And, and I did the classic retail thing. I got up to four stores and I didn't realize cause I was young and foolish that, you know, two stores is not twice as hard as one store. It's 10 times as hard as one store and three stores is 10 times harder than the 10 times problem you had. And, you know, by the time I got to four stores, I was working, 80, 90 hours a week and running all over the San Francisco Bay Area and managing a staff of 40. And, uh, and I couldn't quite get over that adolescent stage uh, of retail where you, you know, you break into, you know, kind of professional management and, you know, and, and have all the additional benefits. Well, that's and a so great point. Called out at I, I want to just, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you all the time, but you have so much to talk all, about, Alex. I just love it. You know, that's such an important point that people think, oh, well, I just opened another store. And a lot of times I think people do that more for ego than necessarily demand. Absolutely. So yep. we do it and then we think, oh, well, I can, I can just do it. But you can't be two people. See, that's the, that's that's the exactly difference, right. I think, right? That you have yeah. four stores and yet you're still, it's, you're, you've added more still responsibility on your back, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Well, and, and it, you know, I think part of what people underestimate because they think, um, you know, two stores or three stores, uh, you know, I'll just replicate the success I had, but so much of their success in a one store operation is them. 
So now when you provide only a third of you to the new store that you open or only half of you, then the problems in that store um, burn out of control <laughs> because they're only getting half of what made the first store work or they're only getting a third if you add the third store. And so not only is it you're not giving them as much attention, but the things that you don't put your attention on get out of control faster and become bigger problems. You know, so the third store is a harder store to run than the first store because the problems that you would have solved the moment they popped up because you would have been on, on site are actually allowed to burn for three or four weeks <laughs> before you even recognize it was a problem. And now it's not just something that you can will back into, you know, back into its normal pattern. And that's what I found. I, you, you just, it, the combination of, of, you know, part of me hopefully was part of what made the first store successful. And so the other stores didn't have as much of me, but also that lack of me allowed the things that were holding them back to fester and get worse where I would have normally have solved them really quickly. So that's, it just it was such, a good lesson for me early in business. <laughs> that's such a great lesson. I'm glad if, if we talk about nothing else, I think that's really important for anybody of any size to understand. And I would also add, Alex, that um, you also were getting farther away from your customer, right? Because oh, now you're being drawn more, into more, all of these different. other things. And you're very... Exactly. The whole part that made you so successful is moving farther back in your scope of vision so now you're more likely to maybe make some other things. So, okay, so you decide, I am not doing five stores. So what do you do? You end up selling them, and how does that work? <laughs> yeah, so um, at the, the sort of end of it, at peaks, peak of four stores and, you know, and, and stretching me as thin as I could be stretched, the, uh, the first dot-com boom went bust, the pets dot-com boom, you know, in the, in the early 2000s. And so I was in the Bay Area with high-end decorating stores when all of a sudden, you know, somebody turned the faucet off. Um, the business just stopped coming in the door. And so I went from four stores to three stores to two stores, and, you know, which was another very good lesson for me as a retailer that retail is cyclical. Um, that was just a really accentuated cyclical cycle. Um, but also that the, having to close a location is – you know, incredibly painful. I was in my late twenties, um, you know, and I was having to lay people off. I was having to close stores. I was having to negotiate my way out of leases. And, um, you know, I, it's sort of my, uh, just add water instant MBA, I guess. Um, but I shrunk down to one store. And when I got back to one store, I retained all my best people. Cause each time I shrunk, I kept, you know, my really core team. And at that point in time, the team in that one store was so good that, I started to be able to do other things um, and I got into other businesses uh, and eventually got pulled back into the family business of manufacturing furniture and actually kept that one store that survived for another six, seven years out in California as an absentee owner. But the difference this time was because I had expanded up to 40 people and then boiled it back down to the best six or seven. Well, those were so good that, they actually didn't need me where when I was growing and just getting started, they needed me every moment of the day. The reverse was now I had really good trained, competent, trustworthy people. And, and now the, and, and, and six, seven years later, I actually um, uh, handed the business off to the manager of the store who was my number three and the third person I ever hired. And she still runs the store today. It's a, it's a nice story. Um, but 
you know, the, the most important thing, I, I guess, for me in those those years was I learned how tough retail was, and I learned those lessons of customer service at the point of contact that that I've you know, really have flavored and, and colored my career ever since. That you know, that a, a healthy respect for just how um, critical the relationship with the consumer is in you know in the the store itself at the point of contact and how that can be the difference maker, you know, hopefully for our, to, you know, our current customers, today's customers, as they try to realign their businesses for the age of the internet, um, that there's still a personal connection that is a difference maker that they need to accentuate and not run away from. Yeah. And I think you said it well earlier that, you know, when I ha- had one store, I was there every hour of every day. I knew the customers. Um, I actually have a there's, a, there's a great story about that. Uh, if you, you know, uh, indulge me, I'll tell you a, a quick one. Um, I had owned the first store that I bought for maybe a month. Um, and I bought it. It had been struggling a little bit. I changed the name. I re-merchandised it, bought new product and did a little bit of marketing. And all of a sudden I thought I was a genius, right? Because sales were growing. Um, and on a Wednesday afternoon at about three o'clock, um, a lady pulls up in a big stretch Mercedes Benz. This is a little store. It's only call it 3,500 square feet and comes blowing through the front doors of the, the store, just as mad as a hornet. She just, <laughs> just beside herself comes up to the counter and I'm standing there next to one of the ladies that I just bought the store from. And she starts talking to this lady, you know, I want to speak to the owner, the, the, it was a drapery job. The drapery job that just got installed at my house is terrible. I have a party tonight. Everybody in the entire community is coming. Everybody at the country club's coming. And I'm going to tell them all the shoddy workmanship that came out of this store. I mean, just berating this lady that a month ago I just bought the store from. And finally, this lady comes up for breath, looks at my now employee, former owner of the store, and says, who is the owner? And this lady turns to me and points right at me and says, there he is. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I think I was 24 years old. My eyes must have been as big as, you know, as butter dishes. And, you know, I said, ma'am, I'm as sorry as I can be. I will follow you to your house and I will rehem every single one of those drapery panels for your party tonight. And then tomorrow we'll pick them all back up and fix them. And she didn't, she didn't know what to say. She said, fine. He turns around and runs out and gets in her car. And I look at the lady that I just bought the store from. I said, what do I do? She said, you better follow her. <laughs> so I picked up a toolkit. We get behind the counter, ran out into the parking lot, got in my car, followed this lady to her house. Now, mind you, this is the East Bay of San Francisco. This is out in the hot area, you know, where in the summer it's 104 degrees. So I sat in this lady's house between the draperies and the window for three hours hand hemming the bottom of these draperies with a needle and thread window by window by window. I was leaving when her guests were coming in for the party, sweating. I had sweat through my shirt. You know, the next day we picked them all up, put them back in the workroom and reworked them. And so there were a lot of lessons that came out of that. First was customer service you know, is an interesting thing. You got to be ready for the, you know, the volcano to explode on you. The other lesson that I learned shortly thereafter was she became one of our best customers over the next four or five years, because we had taken that moment and turned it into a positive. 
you know, which could have been a crisis. I could have yelled at her and stomped my foot and said, we're not doing anything about it and they're fine. And then what I learned many years later, which was probably the more nuanced lesson, was she was actually a pretty shy and gentle person that she had had to sit there and watch all day as these draperies were being put up that were not what she had intended. And she had to work herself up to be angry enough to come and confront us because it wasn't her natural state of being that she was scared to come in the store and confront us. But she, as a consumer, wanted what she had intended. And so she had to sit there for hours to get herself worked up into a lather to be mad enough to come in the store. And if I had reacted with anger, it would have would have gone supernova, right? But instead, I reacted with softness and said, look, and then the value of her as a customer over the rest of her time with us so far outweighed the value of that one order that it doesn't even bear talking about it. You know, and for me as a young retailer, it was a very, you know, a very formative moment in my career. Um, and we, we flipped the way we did business and realigned it all around service. Um, and would even talk to our customers up front and say, look, it, it's possible and not only possible, but likely that in this project, something's going to go wrong. And that's why you're picking us that we know everything won't go right. And we'll be there with you to make it right that we're going to see you all the way through to the end of this project. And, and so let's not assume everything will be perfect along the way. And it's kind of like a marriage, right? When you, when you deal with a customer on a long-term project, you're kind of getting married to them because you're going to be working together and communicating constantly over many months, you know, and, and that's what we tried to tell our customers that in this marriage, it takes two and we will do our part to work with you. You do your part to work with us. When something goes wrong, we'll talk about it. We'll figure it out. And you don't have to get angry because you're afraid we aren't going to take responsibility for it. We will be there with you. And that, that was a big deal for, for my little business out there. Um, we try to hold true to that even today. Uh, but I think it's one of those things that retailers, um, you know, in the, in the faceless age of the Internet, it's a part of the, the retail, physical retail experience that, that just can't be easily replicated online, if you know what I mean. We'll explore more with Alex in just a bit, but first, a quick word about Field Agent, our sponsor. Field Agent is an on-demand platform that furnishes businesses with in-store information, shopper insights, and services to drive product sales all through the Field Agent mobile app, featuring a panel of over 1.5 million shoppers. In a matter of hours, you can get photos and data from stores everywhere. If you need in-store visibility and you need it fast, Field Agent is the solution for you. Visit www.fieldagent.net slash retail doctor for exclusive content. Now let's get back to it. That's an amazing story, and I'd love to just spend the rest of the time unpacking why that is such a great lesson from everything that, you know, when you're first starting out, been easy to pass the buck. I just bought oh, it. Yeah. This was her job, not mine. But you took it and <laughs> exactly said, right. I'm going to go and follow you, right? Because you, what you felt like is, here's this woman mad enough to say, my whole life is ruined because of you, and I need right. to get ahead of it. You took the ball in your court. You ran with it. But more importantly then, I think that you managed expectations because of that. 
You know, I think so many people think that, oh, there was a painful thing that happened in this order. That's a gift because then you can say, all right, so we now have to change something and manage expectations and then get ahead of it because that's all anyone wants to know is I'm going to be reasonable. Things can happen. You are the first guy I've ever heard, and I've had many draperies um, done a lot from probably one of your competitors up there, uh, Monique's up there sure. in uh, Campbell. Oh, yeah. yeah. Small. And that managing expectations, it's not all going to be great, but I can tell you that we are going to be able to handle those little moments so that you will always come back to us. And that's why, you know, let's be honest, Alex, that's probably why your brand is still going strong when an awful lot of furniture companies have gone out around you. Well, and, uh, yeah, that's well I mean, said. I think from in the a lot of ways, standpoint, I, I think that's yeah, very we, different. We, we try. I so, think commiserating and understanding that you know, especially in in large durable goods purchases, they're 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 big decisions for almost everybody. And and when you add the element of style to it, you know, especially a lady that's making an expensive purchase of home furnishings. It, her home and what she chooses is reflecting to her friends and family a part of her, right? She needs it to not not only go well because it's stressful and it's expensive, but she needs it to um, maybe not impress, but um, to show to her friends and family that she's that she can make good style choices. And so you take all that emotion and bundle it up into this decision, and then you wonder why people get stressful and they get mad when something goes slightly askew. And, and, you know, and I tell our people all the time, it's perfectly understandable. You know, they, they spent months working on the idea, the concept, and then they spent another month or two waiting for it to be delivered and installed. And all of that is excitement, anticipation, but also fear and stress. And then in that moment of unveiling, it's all released. And it's either released positively or it's released negatively, right. you know, and we've got to be there with them. And, and, you know, because they also don't do it that frequently in their life, right? You redecorate your home, maybe only a handful of times. And, um, you know, it's just like buying a car it's, buying a car is stressful. It's a big ticket and you're making a big decision. You're going to change the next three, four years of your life. You, people are going to think about you in a certain way because of the type of car you drive and, you don't want to get something that's going to break down and cost you a lot of money. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, we think people are just pure logical analytical units, right? That's what the business world wants you to think. <laughs> you go get your MBA. Well, you just put them in a spreadsheet and chart out the demand curve. And you now people are these crazy bundles of emotion. <laughs> and if you can become a confidant and, if you can become somebody that's a partner in the journey, <laughs> that's a, a co-traveler with them, then it's a much different thing than being just a supplier, a vendor, or a retailer. I, um, I that totally was believe one, that. Yeah. And you take them from being a transaction to that long-term partner. I, oh, yeah. I appreciate that. You know, I, I often say customers aren't just buying a product. They're buying a better version of their lives when they pick a premium item or a luxury item. Absolutely. It's a way of saying... Absolutely. This is my values. This is who I believe, which is um, reflected in the style and the purchase. But also, uh, and to your point, there's there's risk involved in it because this is what I think I want. But if I'm buying, you know, luxury furniture from you, I'm not seeing that for what three, four months. Oh yeah. So you know, I might have changed. <laughs> I might not, and it's, and it's hard to hide like if that. I get it wrong. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've I just bought this gorgeous sofa and I get in my house and decide that uh, it is exactly what I ordered and I don't love it. Now, yeah. you know, if you do that with a shirt, you hide it in your closet. If you do that with a sofa, <laughs> they're hard to yeah. hide. You move. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You move. <laughs> you so, give it to a friend. Yeah. I, so let's fast forward to you. Now you, you sure. um, are the CEO with all of these different brands, luxury brands, and one of the things that um, impressed me is you've made a, a real firm commitment to your brick and mortar retailers. Can you tell us just a little bit about this uh, select group that you've decided to um, focus on? Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, there's uh, sort of an, a historical amount of pressure these days on traditional retailers. And, and it seems to be even more acute in the home furnishings category because the type of store that has existed previously was a large footprint operation, right? So you think about little stores that have pressure from online retailers. When you, when you expand that out to a 20, 30, 40, 50,000 square foot store and the kind of cost structure that goes along with it, we're seeing a lot of our retail partners um, struggle to stay in business. And these are partners we've had for, you know, some of them for many decades, you know, the, the sort of locally owned furniture store operator. And part of that pressure matrix, certainly, you know, it's rising costs, et cetera. Um, you know, but it, it's also coming from, you know, pressures of distribution channel changes, web changes, um, the sort of vertical branded players in the marketplace, like, you know, restoration hardware, crate and barrel. And, you know, and, and, and while we, we love that, there are other ways that a consumer can access furniture. We as a manufacturer need to have that local presence in order to display the product, in order to nuance the sales of the product, in order to help that customer not make that big yellow sofa mistake. <laughs> um, it takes some handholding and, you know, but, but their strain is that their margins um, are, are, are under pressure um, and, and, and they don't have a selection of products that, that give them a unique selling proposition, right? If you're selling the same thing that's available online or, or in lots of other stores, then your ability to commit to the floor samples, the inventory that you're going to display uh, is eroded by that lack of margin, you know, that lack of, of turn, that lack of exclusivity. So what we well, did- Yeah, that, um, that you're going to be in a showroom, right? For somebody else. That you're just going well. to get showroom, the, the classic, yeah, the classic problem that you, you see it here and it's going to get bought somewhere else and it's going to be the lowest common denominator that sells it because they'll hit the lowest price. And in that lowest common denominator, they may have bad service. They may have any other number of, of places where they cut corners, but the consumer at that moment of acquisition is just looking at the price, you know, and all the rest will come later, but it's too late. You've already bought the piece of furniture from them. So, so from our standpoint, we want to, you know, embolden, enhance, sort of build a moat around the, you know, some of these better retailers that are in the local market areas. Um, and one of the ways that we've started to do that, you know, we had a, a group of them that have band together um, and almost formed a buying group. You know, they, they share similar traits, similar personalities, uh, are facing similar problems, but they're, you know, they're each in a different uh, market across the country. And so we started to have a conversation with this sort of group that was coalescing uh, of our, of our partners and customers. And we said, look, if, if you get enough of, of y'all together, you have enough buying power to work with a company like us and we'll create product just exclusively for you um, that we'll work with you to tailor um, a selection 
with your input, you know, so it's not just us developing something and hoping it works for you, but where you can become an active participant in what we create. And then we can provide that to you in a very tightly distributed manner so that you can make a fair price on it, you know, a price that can allow you to pay for uh, good salespeople and, you know, and sharp display and, and marketing programs um, and not be constantly um, uh, battered by this showrooming effect or this, this web uh, pressure that you're feeling from, from the, some of the big, you know, online uh, distributors. And, and I'll tell you that more than anything else, and we think it's a great product line. We, we think it's the right approach, but, but what we saw was this group of retailers looking at us and just saying, thank you. <laughs> thank you for reaching a handout to help us stand up. Because I think there's increasingly been this divide between the manufacturing side and the retail side where the retailers feel like they're being left out on an island to figure it out on their own. And they see manufacturers simply stepping out of that canoe and into whatever the new distribution canoe is. <laughs> And what we've said to them is, no, we're not going to we're not going to get out of the boat with you. We're, we're going to be in the boat with you. And not only that, we're going to double down. We want to know what's working and what's not. We want your insights and opinions into our process so that we can give you what you need to be successful locally, because having that local presence is for us, at least it's bedrock. It's foundational for our business. We we don't do business. Uh, with some of the big national chains that you know that that are dominating the landscape now, we have built our business over seventy years on the local retailers' success, um, and and we finally got to the point where we said it, it's not okay for us to stand idly by and just allow the ecosystem to change so much that that type of retailer goes extinct. We have to help protect them. They are the precious resource. They're the endangered species. Um, and, and what I appreciate cool. yeah, so about it, that is, as well, not to cut you off, Alex, um, what I appreciate not. also about that is um, your commitment to your employees. I mean, how many employees do you have as a manufacturer? I forget. It's, it's uh, a lot. We're about 1,800. Eight, yeah. Um, we, we, we've got quite a few families that depend on this locally. So, yeah, almost 2,000. I mean, it's a holistic approach that this is what's good for us. It's good for our employees. It's good for our customers and it's good for our retailers. And in an era when so many retailers, I think, are, um, you know, cutting uh, their losses and saying, oh, we'll just go online. What they miss is that that local furniture gallery, in your case, is the one that can most make somebody go, wow, I wonder what that would look like in my home or that has that connection to those homes where people have... Um, used your product for generations and suddenly say, you know, I want something new. I'm going to go to the people that I trust instead of, you know, I'll just order it online. If I don't like it, I'll return it. Cause that's a very different mindset than luxury furniture, which you sell. Correct. Right. No, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, and there's, you know, we, we, we're kind of uh, okay with the concept that there is a percentage of the transactions and home furnishings that are going to be done digitally. They're going to be done online. Um, you know, and, and there may even be a phase of your decorating life where you are dominated by online purchases. Maybe when you're just starting out in your own apartment or your own home and the first things you buy, um, just like you're more willing at that point in time to go buy a bookcase from, say, a retailer like Ikea, where you've got to do the labor of putting it together. 
you know, we, we always in the, in the higher end side of the market, we always kind of smile a little bit and say, we don't force our customers to do the final step of manufacturing for us. <laughs> we, that's part of what you get when you pay for the furniture. Um, but when you're, you know, if, if you're a young uh, couple, young person just starting out, you're willing to provide that labor into the, the process. You're willing to take a little bit more risk because the price is low and, and you'll deal with having to pack it back up and all that. But as you as your life gets busy, as uh, your income moves up a little bit, your time becomes more valuable and you might want something that's more refined that, that can be executed only in a factory. Right. That there's a difference between a bookcase that's assembled with rotating screws locally and one that's put together properly in a factory. And as you move up that social economic spectrum and you look for more refined things, I think you then really begin to appreciate what a local retailer brings to the table as far as advice, as far as administration of an order, uh, as far as service after the sale. Um, and I think you start to develop that appreciation for what the local business provides to your community. You know, the, the connective tissue that comes from locally owned restaurants and locally owned stores, you know, is, is very different than even the connections that come from a national retailer and certainly different than the lack of connections that come from a web transaction that happens completely out of market. Um, and I just think as, you know, so we, we know that, you know, that, that, that younger, newer customer, um, there's lots of growth potential for the online retailers there. And then we see a reduction of that as they move up the ladder. But still, if, if, if you're somebody that is buying something that, um, uh, that's more of a um, uh, decorating sort of uh, junk food, <laughs> if you will, that this, I just need it for this event. We got a party coming up. I need a little table over there. I'm not ready to make my commitment to a, a you know, the piece I really want, or, you know, there's always, you know, or I just need some new bed linens. I just need some pillows for my sofa. You know, that sort of decorating junk food piece can easily be done online because you're not making a longer commitment to it. And so I don't have to, worry about it as much. I don't have as much risk into the, into the transaction. Um, you know, but when I've got more risk, when it's a bigger and more important transaction for me, a bigger purchase for me, I want to go talk to somebody. I want to maybe see some examples of that company's product locally. I want somebody to come to my house and spend some time understanding my, I use an analogy like this, Bob. Um, you know, I, I own a furniture and decorating company with my family. And so we've got you know, I've, I've been in the industry 20 years and, you know, people look at me and say, well, oh, you must, you must do your own home decorating. I say, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I hired a designer, just like I don't do my own dentistry and I don't do my own lawyering. You know, I, I've, I've read some legal agreements, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't do it every day of my life, eight hours a day. I'm not an expert. And when it's expensive and important and it's going to last a long time, I want an expert. I want an actual doctor doing my doctoring. <laughs> I don't want to just get on WebMD and try to figure it out myself most of the time. You know, well, same I thing think, with my home design. I think that's such a great point. And let's be honest also, you know, when like I use a CPA for my taxes, I know I could probably right. use QuickBooks and do something. But at sure. some point, someone along the way was able to point you in a way that said, let me, let me instruct you why this is better. And I think particularly when... You know, uh, certainly as I came to appreciate finer 
furniture and art and window coverings in particular, you have to have your eyes opened that, uh, you know, the most expensive piece you buy is the cheapest one because it's not going to last or feel right or et cetera. But you've also got to have someone who doesn't just throw out buzzwords. They're actually able to show you that, yes, when we hand roll a seam like this, it gives a much different look than something that is mass produced and ultimately um, I think for a lot of millennials are very well educated and they're very curious, which is why, you know, whiskeys and some of the things that take longer, Absolutely. whether it's food or drink, shoes. They're, yeah. they're curious yeah. about that craftsmanship. So I think maybe, you know, I like to believe we are coming into a golden time when consumers are starting to appreciate, oh, a human being made this and they have a yeah. skill level and a talent that speaks well with my lifestyle. Would you, would you see that? Oh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you're hundred percent correct. I think there's a renaissance around craft. Um, and I think it is uh, percolating up from, you know, the, the sort of younger consumers in the marketplace who are developing a real appreciation for handmade things, and refined things. And, and you see it in apparel, you, you certainly see it in food and drink, um, the sort of farm to table movement, I think is, is, you know, an offshoot of that. Um, and, and I think as that develops, you know, in, in purchases in your life, you, you, you sort of make that decision that, am I ready to commit to something that's fine and durable and long lasting? Or am I still in this category buying the thing that's stamped out a hundred thousand at a time, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I think everybody, that duality is at play all the time. Um, and, you know, you mentioned art, art's a great one, right? So when we graduate from college or, or you know, we're getting our first career, art is a poster, <laughs> you know, and then, and then art becomes a print of a thing that, you know, is maybe famous and then art may become a, a print of a, of a more obscure artist. And then art becomes an original of a, of an artist, <laughs> you know, and, and there's this evolution that you go through. And at some point in your life, you look back and you say, I can't believe I ever just had posters on my wall, but that's how it starts. That's how the appreciation begins. And, and I think the same thing in, in almost every product category that, you know, I see, um, I see people walking around all the time that make their passion or their hobby uh, the area that they become you know, very well educated in and are willing to invest in, you know, and it may be that somebody loves fine shoes, you know, and, and they're, they're wearing hand stitched, you know, beautiful shoes. And, and you say, gosh, I can't believe you spent, you know, 900 or $1,200 on a pair of shoes. And you hit something earlier. Uh, and oftentimes that person responds, yeah, but I can get these reshod for my entire life. I'll have these shoes for 20 years. The um, and they'll always look great. Exactly. That, that, absolutely right. Instead of just buying something off the rack that wears out after, you know, three months and you just cycle into a new pair and not only will they last, but they'll also tend to be timeless and appreciated by those around me over the long arc of time because of how well-crafted they were. Um, they're absolutely. not trying to just catch the next trend. They are, are really pieces of, of functional consumer art that you use in your everyday life. And I think, you know, our furniture falls in that same category that, you know, I, it's, it's funny. I mean, there are even consumer products made in bulk. I still have my original iPhone, 
um, at home because I can't bear to throw it away. It's such a beautiful, iconic thing. And it doesn't, it's not, hadn't been charged in years, but it's, it's in the bookcase behind my desk because it, I mean, it, it's, it's a piece of industrial art. Yeah. You appreciate thing, design. Object. I, I yeah. appreciate that. And I would, uh, I could talk to you all day, Alex. I think you are just brilliant <laughs> and you have such a great yeah, uh, way about you and you, you get it. You know, I, I would say that if you are a furniture retailer out there and you don't realize that there are people that are out there looking for it and they aren't just going to come in and say, I'm looking for a beige couch that, uh, you know, when people come in looking for floor covering, it isn't a matter that it's the cheapest thing that's on sale this weekend that has everything free that ultimately, if you can just spend the time to actually share that passion in a way that opens people up to suddenly go, you know, I think I would like this. That's where the money is because that's where the craftsmen are. And ultimately, I think that what makes somebody feel better about whatever they buy a four or $5,000 sofa or couch, excuse me, which is it? I forget the couch, which is it? The, sofa. <laughs> the yeah, the sofa. couch is what you see on the, on the right corner of your somebody's Couches, house. That's, that's right. Couch is what's on the front lawn being gotten rid of and the sofa is the nice piece of furniture in your living room. I love that. Well, you guys make an awful lot of great furniture, and I am excited Thank to hear you. about the innovations you're doing with your dealers, you're listening to them, and making a better version for your uh, customers as well. How can our listeners find out more about you? Well, we, uh, we've we got a bevy of websites again. Uh, the primary ones, centuryfurniture.com or hancockandmore.com or hickorychair.com. And, um, and obviously, we're, we're here in Hickory, North Carolina, and uh, and if anybody's in this area traveling and they want to stop in and, and take a factory tour, they just, uh, the, the doors are always open and they're always welcome. So uh, seek well, us out uh, either in person or, or online. You're, a, you're a, uh, a great, you're a great soul to actually think about that, that it is a matter of being transparent. And I, um, I would hope that all of our retailers take away again, the idea that the lessons that Alex learned all came from where from the customer. And that's what's most okay, important. Well, that pretty much does it. And I want to thank my guest, Alex Shuford. One thing I really appreciate from Alex was his perspective as not only a big manufacturer, but as a retailer and giving us the lessons he learned from owning and expanding his own stores. Join me next week when I speak with John and Joe Gaither of Features, a luxury sports sock company, about how to differentiate your products from the rest. I know you won't want to miss it. I'm Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. Thanks again for listening. Oh, and by the way, if you'd give us a review on your favorite podcast platform, I'd be most appreciative. Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of the Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom-and-pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit RetailDOC.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information, to access the complete archives of past retail goodness, and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit RetailDoc.com.